First word from John in his second epistle. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, human beings, I'm sure you've noticed, spend an inordinate amount of time wondering what someone else will do. And it's, it's almost a universal trait, it seems like. Generals wonder what opposing generals will do. Players wonder what opposing players will do. People playing chess, for example, they move and they wonder what the other person will do. Husbands and wives wonder what the other will do under any given situation, especially when the news is not so good. They look for just the right time to break that news, and they still wonder what the other's going to do. Um, honey, do you... Do you like the supper? I know it's your favorite. Hey, why don't you sit in your chair? Here's the remote. Um, about the car. I'm not sure if there's a special class that wives take in this or if they just know inherently because my mom did it and another person in my life does it. Where they, If they buy a dress... They hang it in the closet for like a week or two or whatever. It's an unknown length of time, according to the rules. And then when they do wear it, and husbands look and say, huh, is that new? And Oh, this? Oh, I've had this. Is this the first time you've noticed it? I'm just thankful that husbands don't have to wear guns and tools. Young and old ask this question. Young children wonder what dad or mom will do when they see that not-so-great report card. Employers, employees rather, wonder what the boss is going to do since he's called him into the office for an unexpected meeting. Motorists wonder what that state trooper in the median is going to do that you just passed going nine miles over the posted speed limit. The reality is that for the most part, we have no idea what another person is going to do because people are fickle. People are different. They're volatile. They have different things going on in their lives. They react differently depending on how they're feeling, what they're doing. On the other hand, we have no such apprehension, no such wonder when it comes to our God. Our God always acts in perfect wisdom, justice, and love toward his children. Our God is thoroughly predictable, therefore. We don't need to wonder. He operates always according to the same lines. So it was that when Jesus, in our text, asked that question... What will he do? Even the godless knew the answer. This is the aspect of our God we'll examine this morning. His utter 
predictability. We know what our God will do. The text that will guide and instruct us is found in Matthew's Gospel, the 21st chapter, beginning there with the 33rd verse. Obviously, Jesus is speaking. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? to those tenants. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is God's word. That God would richly bless us through the study of these, his words, so we pray. Sanctify us, that is, set us apart for holy purposes only. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. As identified, the opening verses of our text are a parable from Jesus. And just a couple of reminders about parables. A parable is, as people have described it, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or truth. Another thing about parables is is that there is one central truth. In other words, what we're supposed to do is determine that truth and learn from that truth. In other words, we're not supposed to take all the elements of a parable and create truth or doctrine on that basis. There are some obvious, easy examples. For example, we're not supposed to take the parable of the rich man Lazarus and assume that people are going to be bugging us for drinks of water when we're in heaven. The point of that parable was, if they do not believe the word while they're living, they're not going to believe if they see a miracle, even someone rising from the dead. So here, too, in this parable, a central truth, and we use everything else just as a means to convey that truth. Parables did another thing, and that's why Jesus used them so extensively. Not only did they convey truth, but they did it in such a way that the one who spoke them, Jesus, could not be accused and condemned on the basis of the story he told. 
In our text, for example, the unbelieving Jews knew that Jesus was talking about them. In the verse that followed this text, we read, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. But you notice an interesting thing here? Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't list them. He didn't label them. They had to fill in their own names. And they did that. Paul used the term in his letter to Titus, self-condemned. And that's what the Jews were. The Jews were the ones who had killed God's prophets down through the ages. God sent more. They killed those. They were the ones that would one day kill the heir, which, of course, is Jesus. But again, Jesus never said that. His words simply gave them the means to condemn themselves, which they did. But they hated him for it. Don't miss the utter mastery of Jesus here in, in the whole parable and how he dealt with his enemies in this whole exchange. Not only did he protect himself by communicating with a parable, he asked them a question with a painfully obvious answer. Anyone could answer that question. What will he do? And he did this in a way where he paralleled workers or subjects and the Lord of this property to obviously the Jews in Jerusalem and their God. And yet he didn't say that. They inferred that rightly. But they couldn't accuse him of saying that directly because he just told a story. And yet when he asked them the question, what will he do? The answer was so obvious they had to give it. He will kill those miserable wretches for what they did. And they condemned themselves. He didn't have to. They did it for him. <clears throat> God's word, however, is never intended to just tell stories about others. And that's the way we externalize scripture far too often. And that makes us self-righteous little Pharisees, doesn't it? When we read God's word as, look at those terrible people. Oh, look at what they did. Oh, Jesus was right to condemn them. We can become such self-righteous little Pharisees when we read God's word. If we don't find ourselves in scripture, if we don't apply these words also to ourselves, if we don't take a measure of ourselves according to or on the basis of any given text. So where do you find yourself? Where do we find ourselves in this text? Well, obviously, we're the ones to whom God has given the vineyard. In other words, we're the ones, every Christian on earth, are the ones that God has given this vineyard to. In other words, we make up his people now, his church. And yet, just as when the Jews rejected and failed to produce the fruits of faith, and again, those fruits were just evidence of faith, so when they were lacking, they were faithless. There's a message of law here for us too, isn't there? We're not special. 
We're only special because God declared us to be so, brought us to faith. But as soon as we throw that faith away, as soon as we cut ourselves off from that, we're no more special than the Jews that were thrown out. God expects fruits from his children. There's pure law here that we need to hear. Now listen to these words from John 15. Just as there was no doubt what God would do to the unbelievers, so there's no doubt what God will do to those now still who have that truth, who've been brought to faith, and throw it away. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So you see, the process is simple. We stay connected to Jesus, we will bear fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's self-evident from the picture, isn't it? You don't cut a branch off and expect it to grow. He goes on. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Note especially the word translated abide here. It could also be translated remain. So clearly Jesus is talking about those who were at one time connected by faith to Jesus Christ. Those who believed that Jesus paid the sum total of their sin debt. That righteousness is credited to them, but that righteousness was earned not by themselves, but by Jesus. Those are the ones connected. And by using the word abide or remain, Jesus tells us there's a very real possibility we have a terrible power to cut ourselves off from the vine. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Jesus' words are pointless here. If we can't fall away, why would he even say, if you abide, but if you don't abide? The word abide means we were in him, but we have the power to cut ourselves off. And we don't have to wonder what he'll do. It's obvious. That branch withers. God gathers it up and is burned in the fire. No mystery there. Cut yourself off from Jesus Christ and you will be condemned to eternal torment. Now, these words from Jesus aren't intended to create terror and uncertainty in his children. They're intended to create sobriety and caution. Again, how nonsensical for Peter to say, to tell us that we have an adversary who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, if that isn't a real and present danger to us. Why would he do that? Would you as a parent take your child aside and say, now watch out for hippopotamuses as you cross the street. It's not a threat. You don't bring that into your child's life. But this is a threat. We do have an enemy that wants to devour us. Therefore, this thing that we've been given, we can throw it away. We can reject. We can turn away, fall away. The threat is real. God wouldn't say any of this if we couldn't, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, you remember, make shipwreck of our faith. 
or in 2 Timothy, swerve away from the truth. We do indeed have a God who is predictable, utterly predictable. But that works both ways. We have no doubt what he will say to every unbeliever on the day of judgment. Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. It's, there's not going to be compromise. You can't bargain with God or sort of make up this place where, all right, so I wasn't perfect, I'll go to purgatory for a time, a place where I'll suffer, but not exactly like hell, just it's not a good place. But I'll earn my way and pay for my sins there. The Bible says no such thing. The danger is real, but our Savior provided us a means to avert the calamity of which we are capable. Now don't misunderstand here. Human beings do not have the power to keep themselves in the faith any more than we had the power to bring ourselves to faith. But having been brought to faith, we can now cooperate however weakly. Luther's picture was, when you're brought to faith, you are alive, so you can will to do what God wants. But don't think of it as two draft horses equally yoked together, God the Holy Spirit and, and I keep myself. I love the picture, and I shared it with you, I know, but of a, a little kid with a plastic lawnmower helping dad mow the lawn. I mean, he wants to. The will is there. He's not really accomplishing much, but the heart is right. So when we're brought to faith, we want to do the right thing, but it's God who preserves us. I like the picture also of the light bulb. Can any of you here, by power of your will or thought or whatever, light up a light bulb? No, you can't. But each one of you, and how many of you thought of Uncle Fester? I know you did. But each one of you can plug a lamp cord in, and then a power beyond your ability flows through that and lights up that bulb. You couldn't do it, but you can access that power. And that's where God's word comes in. God has given us this power. It's not of ourselves, but he said, here's how you access it. Go to me in my word. Plug yourself into my word. And that power that brought you to faith will flow through that word and sustain you. So would anyone here be upset or confused as to why this light bulb isn't lighting up that isn't plugged in? Obviously not. Why would we then be confused as to why I seem to be slipping away, why I seem to be fading, my faith seems to be growing weaker? <clears throat> I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that I haven't been to church and haven't read his word, haven't been to Bible class, haven't done anything in the last however long. God is perfectly consistent. He can be trusted. There's another element in our text that speaks to God's consistently and predictability. Jesus as cornerstone. Cornerstones in ancient building techniques were absolutely 
perfectly square stones. They were meticulous with them because once they set that cornerstone, level, plumb, straight in every way, every line of that building was determined on that cornerstone. And that's when Jesus in our text talked about the, the stone which the builders rejected. Builders would look at these stones and say, nope, that's not exactly square, and they would reject it because a good building was founded on a perfect cornerstone. And they looked at Jesus and they said, nah. But the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They looked at Jesus and they didn't like his lines. They didn't like what he said, what he stood for, his doctrine, so they rejected him. And yet, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfectly consistent. His lines, in other words, God's will for our lives, don't change. That means that you don't have to worry as morality changes in our society, as people try to redraw the lines. We just go back to Jesus because his lines never change. What was wrong a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, is still wrong today. What was right back then is still right today. You don't need to wonder. And yet society pulls you into that mindset, doesn't it? Oh, it was, it was wrong back then to have sexual relations outside of marriage. But Yes, things are different now. No, they're not. Go back to that chief cornerstone. What line did he give you? It hasn't changed. You don't need to wonder, what will he say if I ask him now? Same thing he always said. Doesn't change. In Acts 17 we read, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And just in case anyone wonders who that man is that God the Father appointed, Paul goes on, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what does this mean right here and now for each of us? It means that no matter how man tries to twist and pervert, God has set his lines in his word. There is salvation in no one other than through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That doesn't change. It never will change. It cannot change because God established it. What God has declared remains true. It means that every salvation plan, therefore, that excludes Jesus is false, leading always and only to eternal destruction. That will never change. Yet it also means that we never need wonder what our God will do for us in any given situation. It means that you can be assured that when you bring your prayers to the foot of his throne, he will answer you. His answer may be yes, no, not now, 
but he not only hears, he answers. And he answers, you know, always in accord with, again, his perfect wisdom, his perfect love for you. You never need doubt that, that you're alone or that God doesn't see because you didn't get the answer you wanted or the answer maybe you expected. Is God even there? Of course he's there. He promised, the Savior promised to be with us always. The Spirit is within us and intercedes for us constantly so that when we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit is praying for us. Of course God hears, and of course he will answer according to his wisdom. It means that when in humble repentance you bring your sins and lay them at the foot of the cross, you don't need to wonder what God will do with them. He will assure you, because he has bound himself to this, that that sin debt was paid by his son in full. You are forgiven. You're not the sinful slob that you see yourself as because you know your own sin. You are a holy, perfect child of God and heir of heaven because all of your sin was placed on God's son. Perfectly consistent. You don't ever have to wonder, what will God do when I bring this sin to him in repentance? He knows the sin. He knows your heart. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus paid for that sin. Return daily, therefore, to that chief cornerstone. To Christ Jesus, the heart of our faith. And there let him confirm or reestablish the lines of your life. Because there is perfect truth and there is perfect consistency. And when you find yourself out of step or out of line, that perfectly consistent guidance that we find in his word is there for you. But you can't know it if you don't go there. If you don't listen to him. This is what it means when, when Joshua, for example, said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It means we're going to look at the lines that God has drawn and walk those lines. Because God said so. God established those lines. In our New Testament reading, Paul communicated to us the core of the Christian faith when he said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, provided by God, that depends on faith. You know what that means? That means that we do not need to wonder what God will do when he calls this life to an end and we stand before him on judgment day with this faith, this truth in our hearts that I did not pay for my sins, but I believe Jesus did. You don't need to wonder, because what will happen then is that at the end of that earthly walk will begin your eternity with your God who wants to share heaven with you. Amen. <clears throat>